you know, the more we're tied to the NBA, in my opinion, the better, even though we don't want to be the NBA. We, we know we're not. But, you know, certainly we can support that in Canada. Welcome to another edition of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, media, opportunity, disruption, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, flying solo here towards the end of September as my colleague Tom Richardson is off on a little uh, short vacation before the month finishes. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about sport north of the border, um, the border being the border of the United States, actually, and could have been any border when you think about it, but um, with a friend of mine who's been on our show, I believe it's been on our show once before, but is, uh, has a long history in um especially on the basketball side, Portland Trailblazers, then was really kind of there at the advent of the Toronto Raptors and Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment and bringing them into the fold, which obviously basketball has exploded in Canada. And some may not realize there is a burgeoning non-competitive league with the NBA because it is in the summer uh, called the Canadian Elite Basketball League, which uh, our guest is a big part of and has been a part of from the beginning as a startup. Uh, and it continues to grow as basketball grows uh, across Canada. So John Lashway, the Associate Commissioner of the CEBL, welcome to the Cusp Show again. So. Thank you very much. Yeah, I enjoyed being on uh, on this show several years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, I look forward to the discussion here today. Thank you. Cool. So John, why don't you kind of uh, give us a little CEBL 101 and, and tied to your background and how you got involved, especially coming from the MLSE side and some of the other places you were, uh, you know, in your earlier career. Yeah. After I was at the Portland trailblazers, I was recruited to Canada in 1995 to help create and launch the expansion franchise of the Toronto Raptors. And uh, the Raptors had brought in several people who had been with other NBA teams and populated their senior management positions with, with those of us with NBA experience. And, Glenn Grunwald, who went on to be the general manager in um, in, in Toronto, and then uh, and certainly folks with the with the Knicks uh, remember Glenn as well. Mm -hmm. um, Glenn's office was next to mine, and, and we got to be quite close. And um, you know, we would talk about the fact that Canada was one of the few countries that did not have a, an official professional basketball league. And we thought, well, okay, we should probably start one at some point. We're trying to grow the game in Canada. That benefits our organization, the Raptors, but, you know, it just benefits the sport. And, you know, when you launch an expansion franchise, you're working a ton of hours week after week and month after month for, for quite a while. So we never got around to doing that. And other people came along after, you know, through the years and, and talked about it, but it never never even launched. And um, so finally in 2017, unbeknownst to me, um, there was a man named Richard Petko, uh, and he was having conversations with a guy I knew a little bit, Mike Morielli, and I, I knew Mike from the Canadian Football League. He'd been a, a star receiver there for 12 seasons, and he was the head of the Players Association for many years, and, and he'd been a broadcaster with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and they were a client of mine. And so I knew Mike a little bit, and um, we talked about this basketball league that they were envisioning and Mike asked me to help him dabble in that and, and um, get up and running. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. I knew Mike, he's 
very ethical guy and uh, and a terrific guy. And, and I'm really leery of these startup leagues. They come and go mm-hmm. a lot in all sports. And um, there've been other efforts through the years in Canada to, to make this happen. And I, you know, they were such that I wouldn't have put my name to them. And, but this one I thought would be different because, you know, Mike was behind it and I didn't really know Richard, but um, you know, if Mike was involved with Richard, I knew Richard was going to be okay. And uh, anyway, I liked their vision, and uh, in the course of conversations, I saw you know their financial plan, their their strat plan, and all that, and made a lot of sense to me. So um, I started May one of 2018, and we formally announced launched the league. I think May second, and with six franchises, and um, and then there was so there was Mike and and a guy named Josh Knuster, and Josh is now the chief operating officer for the league. Uh, he had worked for the owner um, before, and, uh, and it was really kind of the three of us with some help from um, a handful of others that, that had interest in this as well. Um, and we just sat down at a table and started figuring out, okay, we need team names, we need logos, uniforms, partnerships, uh, you know, selling tickets. You know, we had about uh, 13 months to do all this. And these were six franchises spread out across Canada. So our first season was 2019 and with six teams. And then we added a seventh team mm-hmm. for the 2020 season. And of course the pandemic hit. So we've always kind of operated under a no fear of failure uh, mentality. And so everything shut down in Canada. There was no sports. And this was in March of 2020. So we just decided, okay, what can we do? And so nobody else had done anything in the bubble concept. So we thought, okay, we're going to we'll create a bubble. And we knew that the, the NBA was talking about that. The NBA G League was talking about that, but nobody had done it yet. And, and so we did a bubble, brought seven teams together in a single site. And we had a partnership with CBC, which is the national broadcaster of Canada. And it was the first year of that partnership. So we were the first, first league to return to play in Canada uh, in July of 2020, and their games were on CBC. And so people, sports fans across the country, had nothing else to watch. There was no other live sports going on. Mm-hmm. So that really helped us a lot. Got a lot of eyeballs on this league. And then a week or two weeks later, the National Hockey League started up again. And so then they were, or Canadian teams were playing as well. And then about um, six weeks or so later, I think the Canadian Premier League Soccer did a bubble. We helped them, you know, formulate that concept, and you know they learned from us. There was a lot of information exchange amongst all the leagues in Canada uh, during the pandemic, and uh, the government really stepped up here. So our 2020 season was successful. We, we, you know, it really helped us in a lot of ways. Um, And then 2021 again, the pandemic really lingered here. So we were able to play in our home markets again, but without any fans in the stands. And so we played about half the season with no fans in the stands. But nevertheless, we got you know excellent TV coverage, and and then we were able to have fans in the stands for the second half of the season. So I think that helped us too. <clears throat> and since the pandemic, we've we've added more teams, and now we have ten teams across six provinces. And people now coming and obviously sponsorship and all the other pieces that go, go into that now kind of back full blown. Yeah. And the other thing I should mention that the timing early was perfect because the, the Toronto Raptors had won the NBA championship in 2019. So basketball was really at the forefront of people's attention 
you know, uh, the casual basketball fan became an avid fan. And the person that wasn't interested became a casual fan. And, and I think that really benefited our league. The timing was really good. So, you know, it was kind of a, a perfect storm of, of things supplemented by our, you know, we, we like to say find a way, our attitude of find a way. What, what can we do? And, um, you know, we've made it happen. And the league has since then taken on outside investors, uh, you know, in terms of it was single entity ownership. And then we yep. expanded with outside ownership group and and now we've got other outside owners and, and the original owner still owns uh five of the ten teams and then we've got uh five other that are privately owned and then we're we're gonna add another two two for sure and then and then maybe grow to fourteen or sixteen in the years ahead. But uh you know we'll we'll monitor that growth. I mean managing growth is a challenge of its own and you have to do that really wisely and prudently because um, these leagues can crater but you know we're heading into our sixth season and uh in 2024 and uh have many speed bumps yet so mm -hmm. so a um, couple questions tell us about where the franchises are and the season for people who don't know is uh spring to summer and also who are the players so we're t tell us a little bit about the makeup of the the, the teams canadians non-canadians g league uh, all those things that, that people would be interested in. Yeah, our, our strategy really was, um, well, first of all, you have to know who you are and who you are not. And our strategy was to, to fill that time in the calendar um, when when players, professional players are playing in international leagues overseas or playing in the NBA G League or in the NBA, you know, what are they doing in the summertime to, to develop their game and to get better? And, and we thought we could fill that role. Uh, so we, our training camps start mid-May, and most of the professional leagues overseas are done by then. If your team's in the playoffs, you, you know, you're going to play till June. Um, but the NBA G League is done by then, and then our season wraps up in mid-August so that our players can get back over to Europe or, you know, get a few weeks break before they go back to the G League. Um, and so, you know, that, that's the, the gap that we fill in the calendar. And then in Canada, 73% uh, of our players are Canadian. So there's about 400 Canadians that play professionally, men that play professionally around the world. There's about 200 FIBA-affiliated leagues around the world. Uh, and then there's, I don't even know how many leagues are FIBA-affiliated. We don't really pay attention to those, frankly. But uh, so there's a ton of Canadian basketball. And... This gives these guys an opportunity to play at home in front of their family and, and friends, for really for the first time for most of them since they were young. Because in Canada, if you're really good, you know, if you're 15 years old and you're really good, you're probably going to go to the States. You're probably going to go to an academy there, and then you're probably going to go to university there. Um, and so this allows guys to come home and play in their hometowns, um, which is great. Uh, we have teams in Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver, uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, Niagara, which is halfway between Toronto and Buffalo, uh, Brampton, which is just north of Toronto, Scarborough, which is just uh, east of Toronto, Brampton and Scarborough are suburbs of Toronto, and then Montreal and Ottawa. And level of play, you would say, and then kind of like, what's tell us a little bit about attendance, um, you know, the reception in certain markets, how, how has that been? So people have an idea of kind of like size if they were able to watch it. Yeah. Um, 
Well, anybody can watch our games. They're all live streamed on CEBL Plus, which is on the CEBL.ca website. Um, and then there's the archived games and there's other content down there if, if people are interested in checking it out. But um, uh, the caliber of play would be G League. Um, a lot of our guys, probably, I don't know, maybe a third of our rosters are G League players. You know, and I, you know, being in, in America, I assumed the G League was the number two league in the world. And now that I'm smarter about these things, it, it's probably top five, you know, yeah. at best. So it's, you know, it's not at the level of the top leagues in France and uh, in Germany and Spain. Um, but, that, you know, it doesn't really matter. It, it's irrelevant. Our players come from, from all those places. And um, so, you know, that's the caliber of play that you that you would see in our league. And it's really improved. You know, that wasn't the case in the inaugural season. I think a lot of the top players kind of sat back and thought, geez, you know, do I want to be associated with something like this? Is this going to help me or hurt me? And then once they saw that we treat players really well, our players get paid more on a per game basis than the G League players get. Mm -hmm. So we really take care of our players. It's a, it's a player's first league. Like I said, the commissioner, Mike Morielli, he was the head of the Players Association in, in the Canadian Football League. So, and I've always been very player-oriented as well. So, we're, mm -hmm. you know, we really think player first. And we listen to our guys and, and you know, make improvements, you know, to their, to their um, input as much as we mm -hmm. can. We watch our expenses a lot, hmm. so we don't crater. You know, your expenses better be pretty darn close to your revenue, or you're not gonna you're not gonna survive. So, um, you know, we're very strategic and methodical and thoughtful in how we move forward. So, attendance to to get to that number is in terms it really of thousands. Vary. It varies a lot by market. It, you know, I'm finding it's a lot like the CFL. Um, we are we're the basketball version of the Canadian Football League, or, or hockey's version of the American Hockey League, although we don't have NBA affiliations officially. Um, it, the Western markets do better. Uh, Winnipeg this year had uh, ten thousand three hundred. They had a couple other crowds over seven thousand. Um, a lot of our buildings, though, are about four to five thousand seats. So Montreal spells out virtually every game. Their capacity is 3,800. Vancouver, I think, is about 4,000. They sell almost every sell out almost every game. It just it varies. But then our, our markets um, here in the in the Toronto area struggle a little bit. So so Brampton, which used to be in Hamilton, and um, mm -hmm. I started out also as the president of that franchise. We we moved that franchise from Hamilton to Brampton for a couple of reasons. The primary reason being that the Hamilton Arena was shutting down for renovations. We we couldn't play there. And second of all, Brampton is one of the three hotbeds for basketball in this country is Brampton, Montreal, and Toronto. That's where mm. the NBA players come from. And Canada is the second leading producer of NBA players behind the United yeah. States, way behind the United States, but but second of all the countries. And, and those players come from Brampton and Toronto, primarily in Montreal. Um, so, you know, there, like Brampton, I, I think they averaged uh, 1,800 a game. I can't remember. So that would be the low mark. Um, them, uh, Saskatchewan was about the same. I think a couple thousand. So it varies by market. But our sweet spot is, you know, if we can do four to five thousand, we're very happy with that. That's that's all we need to do, and that's all most of our facilities can accommodate. And rules are uh, FIBA, NBA, combination thereof. Yeah, FIBA. It's FIBA rules, and then we're the first professional league to use what used to be called the Elam ending, 
the oh. target score ending. And so we use that for all of our games. So we started that in the bubble in 2020, and it's amazing. It, it's it, Frankly, for me personally, I was in the NBA for 22 years. I now struggle a little bit watching games that don't have that target score ending. It's, Interesting. it's so exciting. It adds a whole other dimension to the end of a game. You know, If you're ahead, you can't stall. Uh, if you're behind, you don't want to foul to catch up. So the games continue on more like they did in the first 36 minutes of play. We stop the clock with four minutes to play, add nine to the leading score, and first team to hit that target score wins. And so it, it provides an opportunity for a lot of comebacks and mm-hmm. and a lot of you know a lot of scenarios where next basket wins. You know, kind of like you know when you and I were younger, Joe, if we'd have played on the playground, it's kind of that kind of ball, right? You yep. play to twenty-one and uh, next basket wins. So it, it's really fun. The players love it, and the fans really love it. it it's it's really fun. So we do a lot of things like that, but it's. It's uh, FIBA rules other than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of the fans, obviously, uh, given even though it's a competitive wage, athletes can come in and out, maybe go to summer league, have to start early somewhere else, get a tryout. Um, talk a little bit about the fan experience. Is it more minor league baseball-ish or more NBA-ish focused on the players? Um. I use my background, my the exposure I had in minor league baseball. I was, I was an official scorer in AAA and Class A for for ten years, way back way back in the day, and so I was around minor league baseball a lot. And um, I really use that um, as much as my NBA experience and how we build out these games and the things that we do. Um, although personally, because my team was in the GTA, I hired the Raptors halftime guests a lot. So mm-hmm. the you know, when you come to one of my games, you'd see you might see the same act you saw at the Raptors game last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's uh, we say our, one of our mottos is "Come for the party, stay for the game." So mm-hmm. these games are fast because they're FIBA rules. They're about an hour and fifty minutes long, mm-hmm. and and so we provide. Um, there's a courtside DJ that plays nonstop during the game, not just you know at certain times like the NBA regulates. Courtside DJ plays the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, uh, interaction with the fans, a lot of, you know, contesting the timeouts are, are shorter than they mm-hmm. are in non-FIBA games. Uh, but we can still do a lot of encore contesting. A lot of teams have like a DJ or a band, live band on the concourse before the game. After the game, there's autograph tables where the, um, players come back out after the, you know, they've talked to their coach, home team comes back out and signs their autograph for the fans, autographs for the fans. Um, we try to do a lot of those kinds of things, and in our we keep our ticket prices. Most teams, um, I don't know what the average ticket price this year was. I think it's about forty bucks. You mm-hmm. know, courtside seats are anywhere from one twenty-five to we got one team that gets three hundred for their courtside seats. Um, and cheapest ticket in most buildings is around twenty bucks. That's Canadian, so multiply mm-hmm. that by point seven five for U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. And um, we talk a little bit about the broadcast rights, some of the other revenue streams. Is and it's not a single entity anymore. So how? Where did the outside investors come from? Yeah. So with broadcast, now we're with TSN. So TSN would be the ESPN of Canada. Um, mm-hmm. There's two, you know, sports network powers in this country: Sportsnet and TSN. And and we just finished the first year of a multi-year deal with TSN. Um, on the TSN national broadcasts, of which there was 20 this year, um, we were able to bring in an NBA broadcasters. So um, Chuck Swirsky, who 
is iconic in Toronto. He was a Raptors TV play-by-play guy for many years. He now does radio for the Chicago Bulls, but uh, he was uh, one of our play-by-play guys, Rod Black, who is very iconic in, in sports broadcasting in Canada. He'd been a Raptors broadcaster for years, done a lot of Olympics and, and other sports. Uh, so he did play-by-play for us. Paul Jones of the Raptors did color. Amy Otterbert of the Miami Heat, who's from here. Uh, sh- uh, she does Miami Heat radio. She was, she was a color analyst for us. Um you know, so we we really went after NBA people. Um, it adds cachet to the league, and you know, the more we're tied to the NBA, in my opinion, the better. Even though we don't want to be the NBA, we we know we're not. But mm-hmm. you know, certainly, we can you know we can support that in Canada. And uh, I'd like to think that we. Anytime you get more eyeballs on basketball, it's a good thing for the Toronto Raptors. So, mm-hmm. um, so that's the broadcast, and and then each team does its own uh, live streams as well um so uh every game is is available online and uh, we've been on twitch and um in the bubble um we were on tv and fox down in australia we're in australia and uh philippines where basketball is religion um i can't and a couple other countries i'm not remembering at the moment but um yeah i mean we we really try to be a global brand we say we're canadian-based uh, global team sports brand. We we do try to do a lot internationally. We every every team has to have one non-American import on their roster, um, just to spread the brand, you know, more globally as well. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the NBA, um, working relationship with the NBA, understanding relationship with the NBA, obviously not competitive with the NBA or the G League in terms of time. Um, how has that worked? Do they acknowledge you? Do they answer your phone? You know, how does, uh, is there something that could continue to develop along those lines? Yeah. Yeah. They've been good. Like we, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time reaching out to them, but um, when we have, yeah, they've, they've taken the calls and they've allowed us to have a presence uh, at uh, summer league in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we think that's, that's going to continue to grow. We encourage our players to, to leave their CEBL teams during the middle of our season to, to go to Vegas and, mm-hmm. and play. So, you know, a lot of teams will lose a player or two for, you know, 10 days or so during the middle of our season. That's fine. We're all about developing talent and developing players. And we've had nine of our players play in the NBA in the season following their time in our league. Mm-hmm. So we're really proud of that. Um, so that's good. And the G League's been helpful for sure. Um, the, the league office uh, folks there have been, been real good with us. And, and that will continue to grow. It, that's a relationship that really should be there. The, the G League and the CEBL dovetail perfectly because their seasons are uh, they're, they're, they're off season to each other. They have the same level of player. Um, the coach that I had in Hamilton is now the head coach for the Atlanta Hawks G League team. Uh, an assistant coach with the Hawks. Um, so we've had a number of coaches as well that from the G League um, or go back to the G League, they go back and forth between our league and, and the G League. So, mm-hmm. um, The last question about the CEBL specifically, but staff size, what do teams usually have? Is it a dozen people, 15 people in terms of full-time or seasonal? And then how's the league structured? Yeah, so, so for the league-owned teams, of which there's – there's uh, five. The front offices are about six or seven people plus interns, and, they, and that's all year round. And then during the season, you might add, you know, 
two or three seasonal employees, uh, you know, to, to handle work with game ops and additional ticket sales support and that type of thing. Um, the league office, I think we have about 20 people in the league office at the moment, so it's pretty small. Um, so we've run these things awfully lean. The privately owned teams really vary. I think there's one that's got six people in it, and then there's another that's probably got a dozen uh, year-round. So it just depends on, one, how deep their pockets are, and um, and then also their strategy in terms of community engagement and and other kinds of programming that they want to do in the off season, which is, you know, predominantly community programs running, you know, basketball camps and clinics and, and those kinds of things. Um, yeah. What was the other part so, of that question? Uh, that, that was it. The, the other question actually I want to dovetail into is ownership, the, the new money that's come in in the franchise owners. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about them? And obviously you can't tell us how much they sold for, but I would imagine that there's at least – six zeros tied to at least every franchise I would imagine. So in, into the yeah, millions. Um, but what, um, so where are the owners from? Are they Canadian and uh, it's just some, in general, some of their backgrounds? Yeah, so far they're all Canadian. So the Vancouver franchise uh, has uh, one gentleman owns a very successful mining company and the other is a building uh, developer. Mm-hmm. Um, in Winnipeg, the owner is um, a very uh, well. It comes from a very well-known family that created uh, Canwest Global, which is a huge broadcasting empire in Canada. Uh, and he's been a very successful attorney throughout his career. Um, in Scarborough, it's co-owned. Fifty percent of it is owned by OVO, which is Drake's uh, apparel mm-hmm. company, and the other fifty percent is owned by a man named Sam Abraham, who's been very successful in numerous industries. I think he's Canada's largest um, temporary employment business. Mm-hmm. And he's got other businesses as well. He's building, actually, he's building their own arena uh, mm-hmm. in Scarborough, which is uh, breaks ground, I think, in November. Mm-hmm. Um, who am I missing? Uh, Edmonton. Um, mm-hmm. As a gentleman that, uh, you know, somebody you and I would know well, Mike Golub. Uh, mm-hmm. Mike knew him from the NBA days, mid-90s, um, same as Jamie Burns. Jamie was an advisor to John Bitov, who helped, who was the first owner of the Raptors. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've known Jamie since 1995. And Jamie was instrumental in, in the world championships uh, being in Hamilton in 1993. Um, I think that's everybody. Yep. Sounds oh, like oh, and then Richard Pecco owns Niagara and the other teams. Yeah. Right. Um, next question is about basketball in Canada. And from when you were there with the Raptors, you know, the first days of exhibition games, Damon Stoudemire, Brendan Malone, um, to where uh, basketball sits now in Canada. For the people who don't know, tell, tell us a little bit about how much it's grown in terms of both participation and interest. Ah, that's such, I love this question because in 1995, when I came here from Portland, Oregon, where basketball is a big deal, um, you drive around downtown Toronto and never see a hoop. And mm-hmm. And so Isaiah Thomas was our general manager. And so over in the basketball operations where my office was with Isaiah's and, and Glenn's, um, you know, we'd just go drive around the city or we'd go out making a community appearance and you'd never find a basketball hoop. And it was so bizarre to us as Americans, right? And, uh, and now on my street, I live an hour west of Toronto. On my street now, there's got to be a half a dozen portable baskets. 
just on my street. And it's completely changed. And I, I always tell people when I'm speaking in public, if you're under 30, you don't know what it was like before the Raptors. It, it's crazy. It's completely different. Um, it, it's just skyrocketed. And there's lots of reasons for that. Um, there's a good, good film out called the Vince Carter effect. And, and that is legit. And that was really helpful. There was a lot of other reasons too, but that was certainly important. Um, and yeah, basketball now is the number two sport in Canada. Hockey's still number one. Um, but basketball has just skyrocketed. Soccer has done well too. And, and, you know, if I was a soccer guy sitting here, I'd probably say, well, we're number two, but, um, those are really the three sports in Canada. Unfortunately, football is an afterthought and baseball, you can't really find it. It's, it's, you know, as an American from the West coast, it's, it's, um, it's a really interesting experience, but um, yeah, basketball has just really taken off. And this league is just, is helping a lot. The Canadian national team just qualified for the Olympics next year for the mm-hmm. first time since uh, the year 2000. Uh, wow. That's helping a lot. It's got a lot of big, uh, it was big news here when they qualified a couple of weeks ago by getting the bronze medal in the, in a world championship. So mm-hmm. um, the world cup. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a great time for basketball here. Hey. And the growth is both boys and girls, correct? I mean, even though I, yeah. I would imagine the CEBL would have some challenges because your schedule would actually go up against the WNBA, which would be counterproductive. But um, the growth is both both boys and girls uh, in in that area, correct? It is. It is. It's everything. It's it's people wanting to get um, accreditation to be scorers table officials. Mm. Um, it's people moving over from hockey, you know, refereeing to becoming basketball officials. It's, it's really cool to see. Yeah. There's a lot of people that talk to us about launching a women's CEBL, um, which is, you know, that's pretty exciting. It's something that we would be really interested in, but the challenge with that as it is with most women's sports is nobody wants to pay for that. So mm-hmm. I hope that happens. We want that to happen as soon as somebody can figure out how to fund it, it'll happen. Is the marketplace there in terms of talent to play a women's CEBL if you needed the same the amount of Canadians? No, I, I don't think so, no. We'd have to change the, the quota system, I think, in my personal opinion. Um, mm-hmm. No. There's, Canadian, there's, a, there's a sprinkling of, of Canadian women that play in the WNBA. There's more that play in women's pro leagues over in Europe. Actually, women's professional basketball in some places in Europe, that's a, that's a real thing. And, yeah. and some of those women earn good money. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know what time of year we would play or what that would look like, but you know, I hope to I hope to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, the last two questions are, uh, especially you being an American or or holding dual citizenship, but now spending so much more time in Canada. Talk a little bit about the the phenomenon of college sports in the U.S. versus what college sports for a feeder system like that is like in Canada. And then the the second question is. Just overall in Canada, um, you know, obviously hockey rules in, in most places. You've talked about basketball, a little bit about baseball, and there is the CFL. Um, but from a fan perspective, the fan experience being uh, in Canada versus anywhere in a major city in the United States, what's the difference between the two? But touch on the college stuff first. You know, people, kids grew up here in Canada, and I've got three grandchildren here kids grew up here and sports is not emphasized or prioritized and, and in the states of course it is and you know where i grew up 
in Oregon, pretty much every kid was either on the team, on the dance team, in the band, at the game, you know, somehow affiliated or involved, I should say, with, with sports. And here, it's a minority. It's uh, it's just not that way. It's it's grown a lot in the 28 years I've been here, but it's not like we're used to in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, university, to, you know, university, the championship college football game here, depending on where you play it, it's going to draw anywhere from 2,000 to maybe 8,000 mm-hmm. for the national championship football game. So um, basketball, again, it depends on where they have their, their final uh, eight team tournament. Uh, you know, they might get eight to 10,000 and mm-hmm. it, these games are played. Um, high school games are played at three 30 in the afternoon. So, you know, a lot of parents can't even see their child play. Mm-hmm. Um, university games are played, you know, Friday, Saturday. Night. I live near McMaster university, which is a very good athletic program. Always have a good football team, you know, on a, on a great day, they might have 4,000. Mm-hmm. Um, People here are much more – you're going to have more than 4,000 people that are going to drive to Ann Arbor to see University of Michigan or go yeah. down to Syracuse. I mean, the local teams here are Michigan, Syracuse. And people here, especially in Toronto, really mm-hmm. follow university, NCAA and, and, and mm-hmm. NFL or NBA or Major League wow. Baseball. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and the casual fans, is that where they spend most of their time if they're looking for sports? They're going to look to NFL, obviously now NBA with the Raptors being there. Um uh, as opposed to just following, you know, the, the, the following is more North American than, than just Canadian in, in terms of cities and, and loyalties. Yeah, definitely. With the exception of hockey, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hockey, you know, Hockey Canada many years ago was a client of mine. And, and then I was senior VP of the Toronto Maple Leafs for 10 years. And, and even then we have meetings about how do we help stop the erosion of participation in youth hockey? It's expensive. It's a long time commitment. Families don't want to make that commitment. And, you know, you never want to see any sport slide, but, but that one has significantly for lots of reasons. Mm. But, um, but in hockey, they follow the Canadian teams, but in the other sports, they definitely follow the American teams. Mm. Uh, so John, last question, going back to the NBA, since you were there at the, the, the kind of um, the advent of the Raptors, some people, and I keep, amazes me the, the short attention spans or the historical spans may not know that the Grizzlies were in Vancouver when they started. Um, as you look towards, you know, the NBA talking about, you know, going to Europe or expansion into back into places like Seattle or Kansas city or Las Vegas. Um, are you surprised that Vancouver or um, Montreal doesn't come up as a, as a potential expansion city? And do you think that's possible? You know, David Stern often talked about, you know, probably the two biggest mistakes he made as commissioner. One of them, one of them was letting the Vancouver Grizzlies go so quickly. The other one was Seattle, probably. But um, you know, I had no control over both with the ownership groups. But um, are you surprised it hasn't come back? And how much of the Raptors benefited from being the only team in the country? Well, there are groups in Montreal and and uh, Vancouver who would like to. To get a team back and are working towards that goal, but yeah, to your point, they're certainly behind Seattle and Las Vegas and maybe some other destinations, you know, in that lineup. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it would, you know, there's lots of theories as to why the Vancouver Grizzlies did not succeed, and um, you know, I think if if they try it again, I, I believe it would. Um, you know, it's 
but again, I don't know how you leapfrog Seattle or, or Las Vegas. Um, you can bring billions of reasons in and then all of a sudden that happens. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. And here with the exchange rate of the dollar, everything is 25% off. So it's, uh, it's financially worth somebody's while to, uh, to put a franchise in, in Montreal or in uh, Vancouver. Mm. Uh, do you think the so you think the market would be there if that happened for a second NBA team coming back into Canada? Now? It would in Montreal for sure. Uh, I, I think it would in Vancouver too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, um, but personally, hey, I'm a, I'm a Portland guy. I'm a Portland Seattle guy, so I'm all over Seattle. There you go. They need. A team. Um, and just the last part of that: How much has the Raptor or the Vince Carter effect uh, benefited the Raptors as a franchise? A lot, a lot, because. Toronto is a star-focused city, whether it's the film festival or what have you. Uh, when Vince Carter became a star, people wanted to be a part of that. They wanted to go watch him. They wanted to, you know, buy his jersey. Um, yeah, Vince Carter yeah. Was, was huge. Some people will say he was the biggest factor. Yeah. Eh, I mean, I can't argue against that, but but there was a lot of factors. So yeah, no, it was uh, it was significant. Cool. And then um, before we let you go, once again. Can you tell everybody where they can find out more information about the CEBL, where they can follow you, um, especially for people who are so enamored with basketball uh, and maybe looking for something that's not NBA specific? Yeah, the, the CEBL, you can find us on Twitter, um, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, CEBL League uh, is the handle. Um, I'm at John Lashway. Uh, the CEBL website is cebl.ca, and that's got CEBL Plus on it, where you can watch games or archive games or other content. So that's where to find us. And cool. YouTube, by the way. Yes, as well. And YouTube, too. Um, cool. So so once again, uh, this has really been enlightening because we don't talk a lot as much as we should about Canadian sport uh, and always trying to learn more about other opportunities that are out there, not just for people who are job seekers, but but also for you know, anyone interested in the marketing side? Oh, last, last thing before I forget, some of the brands that are involved and how are the brands engaged? I almost forgot about that. So, Well, we have Flair Airlines. We have uh, Ticketmaster, New Era uh, is, our, is our jersey provider. Spalding is the basketball. Um, Red Tag, which is a huge vacation property up here. Um, I wish I could announce a major car dealer, but uh, we haven't mm-hmm. signed. I think we're signing that deal soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I'm missing others, which I shouldn't miss, but I know I am. Mm-hmm. But, uh, cool. you know, those are the predominant ones that come to mind at the moment. So the brand investment is there and growing to make it. Definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And we're, we're really picking off some brands that, uh, frankly, have dumped out of hockey. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Cool. Well, Thanks again for joining us today, John. Once again, our guest today on The Cusp Show has been John Lashway, enlightening us on the CEBL, the Canadian Elite Basketball League. We're going to continue to follow when the season starts again in the spring. And obviously, uh, you know, with everything going on in basketball now, as we head towards the beginning of October, which is the end of the WNBA season and yet another training camp about to open for the NBA. And, you know, Victor Wambayama and crew are going to have an opportunity to, you know, to showcase everything again for Adam Silver. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. So once again, our guest has been John Lashway. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson. We've been talking CEBL basketball. Thanks for listening to the Cusp Show, and we'll see you down the road.